My name is Neil McKay, and I've been the host of this podcast since 2019 when we started as a Saigon podcast. We set out to share the stories of people that lived in Saigon because it's such a crazy, energetic city, and there were so many interesting people here. As the podcast grew, we started to interview more and more people from across the world that all have a connection to and a love for Vietnam. So we hope if you're a regular listener, you've enjoyed these stories. And if you're new to the podcast, then enjoy this episode, which is from the archives while we take a break after season seven. If you are new, then make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get notifications for new episodes and check us out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and even TikTok. Enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm excited to introduce the first ever guest on 7 Million Bikes. It's local comedian, Mr. J.K. Hobson. He was a finalist in the 2018 Vietnam Comedy Competition. And he's known by many people here in Saigon because he's a man of many, many talents. One of which is people maybe aren't aware that he was in, as in MSNBC called it, a fairly well-known thrash metal band called Crisis back in the day. And, and I had dreadlocks, like, at, at some at one point, like, you know, down to my waist or whatever, you know? And then, you know, we walk into a Denny's and it'd just be like, what's going on? People, and people would get uncomfortable, man. I, we had somebody pull a gun on us once in a Denny's. What? You know? And just because they didn't want you there. Didn't like, didn't like the looks of us and we're just like, fuck, we'll just fuck off. We're just eating pancakes. Yeah. So we have lots of things to talk about today. And thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. How's it going? It's going good. Yeah, and so you're from New York originally, right? Yeah, I was born in Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was born there and then moved to New York with my parents when I was just two weeks short of being two years old. So I spent like the first almost two years of my life in, in San Juan, and then we moved to, to Brooklyn, New York. And I was raised in New York City like, like many Puerto Ricans. <laughs> <laughs> and what was that like in New York City then? Growing up, girl, is it like a teenager? Where was it? Is there many open species in New York? Do you have parks, or is it as crazy as Saigon? It's not quite as crazy as Saigon. Like growing up as a as a younger kid, I mean, it's funny when people ask you what was it like growing up in New York City because I didn't, I wasn't aware that I lived in New York City until I was about nine or ten, and I remember my friend Angel. He was like, "Yo, we live in New York City, man. This is." Like, people want to be from here, yo. And I was like, oh, I guess so. Like, I guess you'd watch movies and stuff. It seems to be a pretty important, because before that, you're just being a kid. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, we just run around the streets and, you know, just have fun. You know, this is the 70s pre-internet. So just, you could still do just wild shit and it would never exist. There's nobody <laughs> filming you at the time. Right. I got, just, I feel so lucky that, so I'm 36, and we are almost the same age. Well, generation away from that, right? And I just can't imagine if I'd grown up in that era of being constantly filmed, social media. Why well, do you deal with that? I don't know how young people do. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I remember being neurotic as like in my, you know, twenties, especially worried about what people thought about what I was doing. You know what I mean? Because when you're in your twenties, you still care what people think about stuff. You know what I mean? But imagine having that compounded by the fact that people are watching you all the time, posting stuff on social media. You feel pressure to post stuff on social media, and then you feel the need 
for people to respond a certain way, which, you know, at this age, I mean, I, I understand that. And, and I, you know, if I get a lot of likes on something, I'm like, all right, cool. I'll put a picture of my mom up for Mother's Day. She got a bunch of likes, good, you know, or I posted a cool picture. But, like, my life doesn't depend on it, you know? Some people do, though. Some people, it, does, it matters a lot. And, you know, and when you're really young and those are your formative years, like, I just, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine, you know. And then, of course, as everybody says, I'm glad I got all, all a lot of dumb things out of the way before it, you know, it gets saved for posterity forever. I mean, it makes me uh, almost cringe when I think of some of the dumb stuff I've done when I was young. Like, everyone has. I'm so glad there's not a record of that. Yeah, right. You, got, you, got, you ain't got no World Star videos up there? Right. World Star. Oh, oh, we're, oh World Star. World Star. Oh, man. <laughs> World Star is a, it's a website that primarily focuses on, like, up-and-coming hip-hop artists and people getting their ass kicked on camera. And there's a whole thing. Like, they have, like, I mean, they, they post a lot of stuff on World Star, but World Star is kind of famous for, like, fight videos. Right. And then inevitably somebody gets knocked out and the person filming it will actually yell in real time, World Star, like it, it's going up on World Star. So, you know, this is the stuff I don't understand. Yeah. Okay, I'll put that link in the notes for this episode, worldstar.com, is it? Yeah. We'll have a look at that. Just, just, just so you know, if you ever get in a fist fight and, and you get hit really hard and you hear somebody go, World Star, it's not good. It's not a good thing. That's, that's all you got to know. And so was it growing up, was it watching television and movies and you realized that, that everything's set in New York? And then you're like, whoa, we live here. Yeah, kind of. You know, like when my friend said it that day, I remember we were, we were, so we had for, from like first grade to fourth grade, I lived in Flushing, Queens. And we had this apartment on the sixth floor. We had a balcony and you could see the Manhattan skyline, even though. It was quite far from Manhattan, but you could see like the world. Did they like Center. hang out the bathroom window or something? Like <laughs> well, it was a balcony. So it was like, you know what I mean? Like you could actually hang out out there and stuff. We never did. But sometimes we did once in a while. And my friend Angel and I were out there. We were just looking at the skyline. And he, and he said he was like a couple of years older than me. He was like, yeah. So, so yeah, I guess it must have been from movies or something like that, you know, that, you know, I saw people talk about it. But it wasn't, you, you know, it sort of hit me a little bit. But then you get older and then it, then it goes, like, full on, like, you think you're in the center of the planet. You know what I mean? You think, like, why would you go anywhere else? You know, like, most New Yorkers think New York is is the center of the world. A lot of people do, I guess, you know, and some people never leave. But I, I was fortunate to have a bunch of experience it's, experiences that took me out of there, you know, like, really, to literally the other side of the planet, you know. And so you were in that crisis, which, as we've said, is a fairly well-known band. Yeah. Uh, and so tell me a bit about that. How did that come about and, and what happened with that? You mean the story of why we're called a fairly well-known band? No, right? no that's a funny story. Go on and tell us that story then. <laughs> okay, so in my early 20s, well, I started playing in bands when I was in high school. I played guitar. My first band, I played bass. And I got when I was in university the first time I, I went to university. I was in a bunch of different bands playing drums and guitar and singing, all kinds of stuff. And I was always, like, good at guitar, you know, self-taught. And then at some point, singing and playing for this band, and just always trying to start bands up. And then my best friend, Mike Dixon, he was a singer for a band called No Redeeming Social Value. One day, 
he said to me, you're always trying to start bands. Why don't you just join an established band and then just, you know, rock out? And I was like, yeah, it's that easy. Just join an established band. Yeah, I was like, walk in the door and then Metallica, right? And how old were you at this point? At this point, I was about 26. And then I guess I started looking in the Village Voice, which was like a print newspaper that existed at the time. RIP, R.I.P. Village Voice. And I was looking in the Musicians Wanted section, and it was this ad. It said, band with influences including Black Sabbath, the Melvins, and Acid Bath seek second guitar player. I was like, well, that's right up my alley, man. Like, especially Sabbath and the Melvins. I was like, all right, bet. So I, I called up, and the there was an answering machine, for those who remember answering machines. And the outgoing message was this woman's voice saying, leave all messages for crisis, and I hung up. Because Crisis was one of my favorite bands in New York. I had been a fan of theirs. You already knew them? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I had met them before even a couple of times. But I was like a super like huge fan of theirs. Even that I would watch them play and just be like, wow, I wish I was in this band. I should be in this band. And so we would just, this is like, for a lot of reasons, you know, some of them are musical. And then so I hung up and then I got my shit together. <laughs> and then I called them back and left a message. And then went down to one of their shows and checked them out. It was at Coney Island High, for any New Yorkers listening who remember that. And they were so good. And I was like, oh, my God, if I don't get in this band, I'm going to be so depressed. You know, and then met them afterwards and, you know, exchanged music that I had written with them and talked music with Avzal, who was the, the guitar player. So basically, they were a four-piece, and they were looking for a second guitar player to make it a five-piece. So they weren't replacing anybody. They were just adding a second guitar to the mix. So long story short, we hung out a bunch, went to the studio with them and played a couple of songs, learned some songs that they had given me, added some parts to them, and then I showed them that I had learned one of their kind of big songs called Mechanical Man from their third album. And they were like, ooh, cool. And then, yeah, long story short, I, I got in the band and we started touring like... I want to say not even two months later. What were you doing for work at, the, at that point? I was doing temp work. So I was doing data entry. I mean, like, yeah. So destroyed. Oh, man. I mean, the only thing that wasn't soul crushing about it was that it was a temp job. So, you know, when you're when, like, if you work for a corporation and you know, like, that's it, repeat ad nauseum for like, you know, as long as you can, you know, imagine. That's depressing. But if you're like, ah, I'm the temp, you know what I mean? I'm going to be out of here, you know? So, you know, you don't have to get caught up in the politics. You just get in there, do your job, and bounce. So I was doing that. I had been doing that for, like, maybe a year or so. And then, uh, yeah, so the cool thing about that was that when we had a tour, I could just be like, oh, well, I'm not going to temp at this time. So I'd bounce out, and, you know, we'd be gone for a couple of weeks and then come back and just, you know, be working again. Yeah. And so you got to tour all of America, yeah, well, I mean, at that, at that time, we just did the East Coast. We were touring up and down the East Coast, I guess, like, as far down as, like, Florida, you know, from New York, a lot of Northeastern shows. I mean, the East Coast of the United States, the cities are, it's very dense. So the major cities are, like, not like, Philly's, like, two hours away, you know, Jersey's, like, right over the bridge. There's, like, a lot of places to play on the East Coast. So we did a lot of East Coast shows. And then in 2000... We decided to move to L.A. because that's where the music industry was at. Like there were so many bands that were from New York 
but then had to leave New York to, to get signed because the for rock music, it was really happening in L.A. New York was big for hip hop and New York's underground scene was was killer. So many great underground bands that came out of New York, but I can name on one hand how many of them like really blew up, like Biohazard and Helmet. You know, there were a few bands, you know, Quicksand sort of did all right. But the bands that really broke through, like out of the underground, moved to L.A. to do it. Like White Zombie is a great example. You know, like White Zombie, I went to high school with the drummer Ivan and uh, they even played in my high school, you know. And they were, and I remember seeing them in New York and just being blown away. Oh my God, they were so good. Like, and they were playing that music. They were playing the, the music for their fourth record, which is the one that, where they really broke. They were playing that for years before they moved to Hollywood. And then they moved to Hollywood. And then next thing you know, they're on MTV and huge tours. You know, they just, re and, but you know, they always had something like really special about them that really set them apart from a lot of, all the New York bands, you know, and Crisis, we kind of felt like we did too, you know, and so we wanted to kind of break out of, you know, sort of the constraints of being in this like local scene, which is a great scene, but we wanted to take things to the next level. So we moved to LA. And then, and then what happened in LA? Did you take it to the next level? We did. We, we went through a lot of changes first, but like, so when I got in the band, man, I've never really talked about this in an interview before because it was I've, I've never done an interview like not in the context of being in the band. But basically, so this band, we Crisis was like a heavy, like thrash, crusty, like Sabbath-y, not really fast. And we had a female singer, insane, amazing singer, Karen Crisis. She always said she sounded like, like Bjork, Janis Joplin, and Linda Blair from The Exorcist rolled up into one. Like she could just flip it from just being really ethereal and atmospheric and really beautiful to just like screaming and guttural like growls and you know really insane well let's take a pause for a second and we'll play a little clip of crisis and so what happened next thing in, in la so, so when i joined the band in new york actually before we went to la they were working on a new record but it was like really bluesy and really like like not heavy not that i not the crisis that i remember so it was kind of weird like jumping in was like okay they were going kind of more in like a like a stoner rock kind of direction which i liked a lot of that stuff but it wasn't like the thing that I really wanted to do, but it was like, okay, like I believe in this band and I believe in, you know, I believe this is definitely better than what I was doing before. So, so we started writing songs kind of in a more, definitely in a more commercial kind of vein. And we moved to LA, like kind of thinking, you know, as, as bands do, oh, we're going to kind of, you know, dumb it down a little bit because Crisis's music up until then had been somewhat like, schizophrenic and crazy and just you know very like not commercial you know and sort of inaccessible you know except to people who really understood it and who was driving that change in the music there was the other guitar player of zal who was like really kind of you know at that point really the driving force behind that change and yeah and and that even spilled over his he was married to to karen or he became married he married karen actually a few years after we moved to LA but uh, but they were together and he even was sort of directing her to make some changes you know which 
I think everybody had different degrees of comfort with, you know, but anyway, at any rate, we, we moved to LA and then, you know, we're like in the Hollywood scene and to hanging out with other bands and stuff like that and different kinds of bands. And it was really interesting. It was, it was, it was really interesting and schmoozing and, you know, Lenita Erickson from this band Vixen is like an old eighties, like, like glam metal, like all female kind of hair metal band was our manager. You know, she's bringing Gene Simmons to our shows and like hanging out backstage with him and, you know, going to parties in Malibu with him and Paul Stanley. And I remember being at this party in Malibu with just like all these Hollywood like rock stars and shit, but just also being like, like kind of standing in the corner, like, oh, this isn't my scene, man. But I guess here we are. And ended up actually like talking to this other dude and uh, who was also kind of older cat. And we're just kind of like sitting back and just having drinks and like laughing at the whole thing. And then, uh, and it ended up being, oh God, what's his name again? How am I forgetting his name? Oh God, he played drums for Merciful Fate and then was also the drummer for, I was like, dude, you look familiar, man. Are you having a band, right? He's like, yeah. I was like, what's the name of the band? He's like, oh, Moahead. I'm like, Moahead, get the fuck out of here, man. Oh, God, what's his name again? Mickey D. Mickey D. There we go, Mickey D. And just being like, holy shit, you're Mickey D. Because he used to play for Merciful Fade and, and uh, King Diamond, and then he was then he was in Motorhead. And so, that, so anyway, that was all super cool but weird. You know, met Paul Stanley. I think he has the same, I don't know if I should say this. He like he obviously had work done, and he, he had like the same inability to change facial expressions that Cher had. You know what I mean? It's like he gets so much. All right, what the doctor's like? What facial expression do you want forever? Right? Because <laughs> you think he had like a book, and they have to like choose one. Like, yeah, I want that one. Like, just mildly startled. Yeah, just like like always surprised. How I always want to look surprised. So that was cool, except. We couldn't get signed. Like the only deals that we were being offered, like we, you know, we were in talks with, with a few, like kind of big Hollywood adjacent, like kinds, I won't name any names, but like, you know, oh, this guy wrote a song for Madonna. You know what I mean? And he wants to sign us. But then it was like development deals where they're like, oh, okay, well, you know, we're going to, you know, give you this much money, but then it's recoupable and you're going to have to use our studio. And then, we're going to charge you this much for using ours. And it's like, oh, wow, you guys are, you know, they're just they're not actually things. giving you money. They're giving you like studio time. They're giving us the opportunity to take a lot of money from us. Right. You know what I mean, yeah. to, to give us money up front and then get it back in studio time and basically, you know, be in the hole as, as a lot of yeah. artists are. So we didn't get offered any, any really good deals. And then we got like, just frustrated. Because I was trying to see, so how, how was that coming from like thrash man? Oh, making good music. And then suddenly you're in the Hollywood scene and then you get in the realities of the business side of it. Like, well, how did that feel seeing that? Oh, it was, it was hella gross sometimes, man. One time this, this lawyer for this, this group, uh, it was like a little small conglomerate. He took us out to have drinks at the standard. And so, you know, so this singer that I have that we had, uh, she was, she was, she was pretty tough, you know? And so she didn't really suffer fools like, you know, very often. And, you know, we're we're out there at the standard and we're by poolside. He's buying drinks for us and schmoozing with us. He's like, hey, he's like a total, it was like something out of a book. Hey, we like you guys, you know? 
That's what we brought you here because you guys are real. You guys are from New York City. You're the real deal, right? And then he looks I'm at assuming her. this guy's on a lot of coke. He probably. <laughs> I hope so. Just do the script, you know, but just imagine him. I cer- he seemed like it, and I certainly hope he just wasn't naturally like that, right? It's, but it's a total, yeah, that's a total L.A., right? And then he looks at her, and he says, yeah, you guys are the real deal. But first of all, first thing we got to do, we got to get you some tits. He says to her, and we're just like, what the fuck is this guy fucking serious? Whoa. You know, but we all just kind of like, you know, observed it. And she, you know, she she took it like a champ. But then we're just like, wow, this is this is really not our scene. So at a certain point, we just kind of, we said, all right, fuck this. We put all the brakes on. And we just kind of looked at each other like, all right, what are we going to do? Because we don't like the way this feels. Hey, how about this? How about we just make the record that we want to make? Fuck the dumb shit. Were they already trying to influence the music that you were going to make? Like, were they saying you can make a record with us how we want it to be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were telling her what to sing about, you know. They're like, you know, not so much with the music, but with their voice and, you know... Yeah, they were like a bit like, it's like, we like you, but we want to do this with you. You know what I mean? And we were, by that time, we weren't, we weren't kids. You know what I mean? At that point, like, this is like 2002. So I'm like 30 at that point. You know, like the other guitar players, like quite a bit older. So we were pretty solid in what we were into, what we wanted. So it just, you know, it, it just didn't feel good. And then at a certain point, we said, fuck this. We're going to make the best record we can. And we learned a lot from that period. From, from like, we wrote so many songs and demoed so much stuff. We learned so much that we said, you know what? Let's just take what we learned, but apply it to what we already know, what we're into, and make a heavy ass record that's heavy and interesting, but melodic. Like everything that we know. I mean, I think every album you do should be the culmination of everything that you've learned as a human being up until that moment. And that's what we did. And we, we self-financed it. We saved money. Uh, we got this guy, amazing producer, Billy Anderson. He's re- recorded with, with Kurt Cobain, The Melvin, Neurosis, like so many great bands. And he loved Crisis. And we're like, dude, come through and, and, and record our album. He came, he just, yeah, give me a place to stay. I set up the studio time. I always wanted to record y'all, you know? Came awesome. through. Yeah. And we spent, we spent a bunch of days. At, it was a desert... Desert Sky Studios or Desert Room Studios or something in, uh, in, in, in Orange County, California, recorded eight songs. You know, who, what's this going to be for? We don't know. Started shopping that, got a deal like that. Wow. wow. Spent that's e- awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, we spent years trying to figure out what the industry wanted. Oh, we should do this. We should do this. We should. And the minute we we're just like, let's just do what we want. So let's just do us. Boom. And all of a sudden, you know, record deal with, with, with a very cool underground label that's, that's still around now. The end records, they were in Salt Lake City and now they're in, uh, they're in Brooklyn and doing great. And we were like their first touring band. So they, you know, they bought us a van, a trailer, gave us a lot of tour support. And we were just like, yo, if you sign us and, and give us support, we'll promote the hell out of this record on the road. So we did. We got a bunch of national tours. And then that's when we started... You know, we had toured the states, like going across the states here and there, but that's when we started hitting like every state. So we toured forty-eight out of fifty states. You know, oh, went to states. Can you two. name them? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the United States minus Alaska and Hawaii. Right, it's all uh, continental. 
you ask, wow. Yeah. So then, what's America like? Because right? I think everyone knows America from the movies, right? Yeah. Uh, I've been there, but I've only been in the East Coast, really. And then, so it's really diverse America, right? Yeah. And I don't think people realize that. Like, yeah. all these states, everyone, it's all really different. So what, what was that like? Was that an eye-opener? What did you see that you, were that you weren't expecting? Yeah, it was an eye-opener because I grew up in New York City, you know what I mean? So it was like, and then I lived in L.A. after that, which is like too... Once you start traveling the States, you realize that you're in a bubble. It's not real America, right? And and, and, and that's why when, when Trump got elected, I was like, of course! Because I was in those places, you know what I mean? Like, I remember being in the South, you know what I mean? We, we you know, people, we would walk, we would walk into a Denny's and it was like the, the record would skip. You know, people would be like, because mind you, so this is, crisis is comprised of Karen crisis, right? Short white girl with long dreadlocks, almost down to her feet with tattoos, right? I'm going to put a picture of crisis on the notes. Okay, cool. Amzal, who's the other guitar player, he's from Pakistan. Gia, the bass player, is big Taiwanese dude, right? A bunch of different drummers, like each one a freak in their own right. And then me right and so when we were, were walking into your big dreads at the time right? and i had dreadlocks like at, at some at one point like you know down to my waist or whatever you know and then you know we walk into a denny's and it'd be like what's going on? people and people would get uncomfortable man I, we had somebody pull a gun on us once in a denny's what you know and just because they didn't want you there just didn't like didn't like the looks of us and we're just like Fuck, we'll just fuck off. We're just eating pancakes. Yeah. So, no, I, this is where I'm from. You fucking pulls the gun out. You know, and we're like, well, what, what are you going to say to that? What are you going to, you know? And did you leave? No, we, so he, ended up, he ended up leaving. I mean, eventually we left. You know, we left. <laughs> well, you're not, we're not in that Denny's today. Still recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still, yeah. It's a rift in the space time continuum. <laughs> There's still a version of us out there still. Eventually we left, you know, but, but all that is to say, yeah, I mean, you know, not every place is like that. Some places that are, you know, that are quiet, rural, people are kind. And, you know, there's all kinds of people, man, you know. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was an eye-opener. I, I experienced, you know, I just experienced different kinds of people that, that I never would have, you know. And that's for better, for worse, you know. Just like, you know, people who lived in compounds and, you know, grew their own stuff and, you know, artists in, in Detroit who lived in big abandoned warehouses and made black light paintings of bands who were coming through. You know, these guys are chemists in St. Charles, Louisiana, that are extracting the active ingredient from Robitussin that makes you trip and just giving it out to people, you know, including us. Just all kinds of folks, man. So it was, that was really eye-opening. And, you know, I will say, and I think you probably agree, like you don't really know who you are or you know who you are a lot less, at least, if you don't leave the place where you're from. And discover, you know what I mean? 100%. You got you to gotta have the total context of who you think you are taken away from you before you're like, okay, well, who am I in this very different situation? That's who you really are. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So I, I'm from Glasgow, and uh, people maybe people don't know, but Glasgow has a huge sectarian problem between Protestants and Catholics, which is linked to the soccer teams, Rangers and Celtic. And Rangers are the Protestant team, and Celtic are the Catholic kind of Irish team, Irish 
so, uh, they've very much got a lot of supporters in Ireland, even though they're a Scottish football team. And so growing up, I was a part of that. I was a Rangers fan. I'm not religious at all, but, you know, got all swept up in that just because it's you have to, really. And it wasn't until I left and moved away, and then I was like, oh, that's not cool. Like, that's not right. And then you definitely, you 100% you grow as a person. I almost forget now because it was so long ago, and now I'm like, I am who I am. And I'm like, I can't believe who I was then. You know, just like we were saying earlier, I'm so glad people don't have videos and pictures of back in that time. Like, I've got some old pictures, you know, printed pictures in photo albums of myself back then. And yeah, it's, it's embarrassing. Were you know. a hooligan? No, I wasn't a hooligan. I mean, if you can't see me right now, you can see I'm like about, what do you say? I'm about 50 kgs soaking wet. So I was never a hooligan, but um, there were hooligans around. And we went to some scary places. We went to Holland. That was quite scary. We were playing in Rotterdam and we weren't allowed to go to Rotterdam. We had to hang out in Amsterdam and then be bussed into Rotterdam. And the police had to give us an escort to the stadium where people were throwing stuff at us. People would piss into cups and throw cups and coins and, and things like that. So definitely like around that. But I never, I never saw anything like anyone. Never seen anyone get stabbed or anything like that. My dad's friend did get arrested at one game for punching a riot policeman in the back of the head, which is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in my life. And funny story about that was, it was my first time going down to England with my dad to watch a game. And it was a heated game because we were playing a team from Ireland and we had to play at a neutral venue. That's why we were playing in England. There's riot police everywhere. My dad's friend, who's the nicest guy in the world, my dad's still best friends with him. For some reason, only known to him, decided to punch a riot policeman in the back of the head. I was behind him and I saw it happen. I was like shocked. And for a split second, he got like one step. I thought he'd gone away with it. But riot cops, you know, they all look out for each other. So within that one step, they all grabbed him, pinned him on the ground, the shoe was on top of him. And my dad hadn't seen it and he ran over and my dad was like, leave him alone. He hasn't done anything, he hasn't done anything. I was like, dad, dad. No, no, he did, he did. And I remember the cop turned around to my dad. I was only 16 at the time. The cop turned around to my dad and he says, if you don't let go right now, you're going to be arrested and your son's going to be arrested as well. And my dad just picked me up and we walked away. <laughs> and we had to call his wife and he, he spent the night in the cells. And so we got back to Scotland the next day. We got back to Glasgow. And my mom and dad, they went together and I went back to my mum's house. She was like, how's the game? I saw all that stuff on TV and I was like, oh yeah, no, it was all right. There was no trouble. She's like, well, what's this then? But in the VCR, she'd recorded the news the night before. I had bleach blonde hair at the time, embarrassingly. And there was me and my dad trying to basically free the prisoner of my dad's friend on national news and she had it on VCR. <laughs> I had to be like, yeah, my dad's friend, I won't say his name, uh, he's still in England, he's in prison right now. Well, I guess, what do you call it? Like, yeah, in the cells for the night. So he, he was fine, he got let out, it wasn't a big deal, but yeah, that was it. So I was around that, yeah. Um, but yeah, you definitely, you change is basically the point, right? And as soon as I left, and I, so I moved to America, I lived there for a while, and that was just the biggest wake-up call for me ever, it was just like, wow, there's a different way of doing things, you don't need to hate people, who's good, because I was brought up to hate Celtic which in turn meant you hated Catholics. But I didn't hate them, and they didn't really hate us either, but that was just like this sporting tribalism that's really um, unique to Glasgow. And then he moved to New York where they hate the Boston Celtics. You're like, what's going on? It's following me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I spent some time in New York as well. What, what's some of the big changes that you've seen in New York since you since you last lived there? Oh, Jesus. It's become... 
it's barely the place I remember. It's like super gentrified is like not even the word anymore. It's like a different place. They say that in about maybe in 30 years, the New York accent won't even exist there anymore. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's like a projection, you know, because it's just, I mean, it started, I want to say it started like in the late nineties. I used to hang out on the Lower East Side, which was like artistic community, just, you know, a lot of artists, a lot of punk rock bands and squatters, homeless people and junkies and, and, you know, and just, just low income folks trying to get by, you know, and I felt very comfortable there. You know, I, I really dug it. It was like a place where you could be yourself. And, you know, everybody's just doing doing what they want. And there's, like, scenes and music and support and and art and culture. And, yeah, it's grimy, but, you know, that's... So my question is, then, do, do you think gentrification is a bad thing? Of, of course it has. It has there's, a, there's a good and a bad side to everything, you know? It's like, well, you could say, well... Gentrification is good because it cleans up the neighborhood, right? And then you have like opportunities and you have, you know, like growth, economic growth. But for who? You know what I mean? Not not for the police. It's, it's, it's the inequality, which is always the problem, right? Yeah. Like worldwide right now. Yeah. Like, the thing is, life is getting better for a lot of people. Right. Especially in Vietnam, right? right. Like people are getting pulled out of poverty. Yeah, the rates are unbelievable. Right. The, the amount of people that have moved from poverty to not in poverty. But at the same time, there's this massive unequal gap between the rich and the poor, right? Right. And so you have this gentrification. And like you said, you were saying before, there's like squatters and junkies. And, you know, I think we um, romanticize it a bit because we yeah. think that that's amazing. Because I used to live right. in, in St. Kilda and yeah. in Melbourne. And that used to be like that. Loads of junkies. And it was, you know, rough and edgy. Right. And everyone romanticizes about that. And then right. you're like, yeah, but it wasn't safe. People were using drugs. Yeah. There wasn't many jobs. Right. I think it's really easy. I think a lot of people, myself included, we sneer at gentrification. But then when you think about it cleans the place up, people get more jobs. You know, that's I definitely understand and agree with a lot of what you're saying. But what's different about Vietnam and New York is there's not the level of displacement in Vietnam. Because, I mean, all right, so you have people that are coming here and the economy is developing. But Vietnamese people are, are still, you know, a lot are still going to benefit from you know you know foreign investment and all kinds of things right but in places like like in new york for example part of gentrification like the first wave of gentrification was police coming after people that looked like me mm. right i got arrested three times when i was in new york wow right? and neither and, and was that during the time of the like search and frisk that was before before stop and frisk, stop and frisk. But it was while Giuliani was in office. Mm-hmm. Giuliani, who was one one of Trump's lawyers until recently, and they they were basically in certain neighborhoods. It wasn't even stop and frisk. They were they were ritually harassing people that looked like me. I got arrested three times. First two times, I didn't commit a crime. Third time, I did spit a piece of gum into a sewer grating, mm-hmm. and the cops beat the shit out of me. Wow. Took me to jail, and then I still had to go to court for it. And when I went to court, they gave me a ticket for spitting, a $10 ticket, which I still haven't paid. 
I might have ordered a thousand dollars. Next time you go back to America, they're going to be waiting for you. Yeah, probably. You know. But so the point is, is like when you say, "Well, there's a lot of benefit," but but because you're not necessarily seeing what's happening to the people who are being displaced, people are being harassed. So yeah, I can't say there's not a benefit, but I think to say that, you know, it's easy to say the benefits outweigh the 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 non-benefits when you're not looking at the people who, yeah. who are being displaced or being harassed. Yeah, and I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit, I just because you often just hear people go, oh, gentrification, yeah. without really talking about it's safer now. Right. It's cleaner. It's nicer. Yeah. Yeah. There's less junkies. But I think what you're saying about displacement is correct, right? Because those people have to have somewhere to go. Yeah. Otherwise, they just kind of get moved somewhere further away or somewhere with where they were originally living, which I think is the problem in New York right now, right? Yeah. People, a lot of people. In San Francisco, people too. Right? And and some people, it, people that live in New York, you know, they're like, good. You know, this rich New York should be a place for rich people. But, but then what happens is like, what's happening to the culture there like the things that people move to new york for often don't really exist anymore you know so it, and you know and it gets i could totally be romanticizing it you know what i mean i grew up in new york city in the 70s and 80s and you know there was just it was just so much life and now it's kind of been replaced it's sort of Bland. And- I definitely think you're right. I think it affects art, right? Like you're yeah. saying, like that grunginess, like that produces good art, and now it's bland, just like you said, right? So we have the safety, and we have the Starbucks, and the nicer coffee shops, and so it's nicer, but it's blander. So again, with, with these trade-offs, like, and I don't know what's the what's the solution, you know? Because it's not going back. Yeah, it's only going to move forward. So where do we find? new how do people find new creative outlets or where does that new art come from or is it just going to be all saccharine pop where everyone has to give into the music companies like you didn't and then just produce this bland pop that we have which is which is anyways yeah yeah. that's just not a that's not just a new york thing you know i mean if you just look at hip-hop and you look at hip-hop before people knew you could make a gazillion dollars doing it you know, it's just, you know, or even rock music, you know, all kinds of forms of art and music, you know, before they become commercially viable, you're like, wow, it's raw, that's great. And then once you figure out, ooh, you know, well, I can auto-tune this and, you know, and some people, and some people like that, that stuff, you know, that stuff kills, you know, it makes, it makes a lot of money. But I think the authenticity is really the thing that, that I miss. Mm. Not just New York, but a lot, but a lot of things. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's it's happening everywhere. Anywhere you go, like I said, I lived in Melbourne. That was happening there. St Kilda was really grungy, grimy. There's a lot of homeless people, a uh, lot of drugs. But it was edgy and it was cool and it was like cool dive bars. And, and that was before like I got there, but it was still kind of lingering. I was there for nearly four years and I saw it progressively change. To, and the, but you're right, like, these people pro- progressively got moved out. And I don't think... Was there any plans for where these people are going to go? I, I don't think you're raised out of it. And then it's like, well, well, like, well, homeless people will hit them and say, don't eat spam in New York. All right. I'll just say that right now. First thing. I wouldn't eat spam food stuff. Explain why not in New York. <laughs> no, it's a joke. It's, uh, no, it's like, where, what do they do with these people? It's like, well, don't eat spam in New York. Why? Um, I, we, I don't get the joke. Oh, it's, it's just terrible, man. No, it's, if I have to explain it, it's, it's, it's... No, because the neighborhood I lived in in Glasgow was called Spam Valley. Okay. And it was because the people that moved there, we moved to the burbs from the inner suburbs. Yeah. 
And my mum and dad, like lots of people, took on a mortgage that they couldn't afford. Yeah. But they got to move me to a nice suburb area with parks and clean spaces and a good school. So I'll always, always be grateful for that. Yeah. But I mean, we had very little money. Yeah. To the point where, you know, bills didn't get paid. We always had food on the table, but like bills didn't get paid, things like that. And so I didn't find this out until years later. Bishop Briggs got known as Spam Valley because it wasn't just our family. It was lots of other families moved there with the idealization of moving to the suburbs, but not actually being able to afford it. Yeah. So the theory was everyone was eating Spam. Right. Because that was all they could afford. Uh, yeah. And when I heard that, I was like, I mean, we weren't eating Spam, but yeah. I was like, yeah, that makes complete sense. I did Spam as a kid. That Man, you like, <laughs> so kind of a little, like a little bit burnt. Like with some pancakes, something like that, put it in the syrup. Ooh, it's big in the Philippines too. Like it's yeah. like spam and, and on rice. It's like real, I think. Is it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't yeah. get it. Yeah, I don't advise it. So, what's the phrase though regarding New York? Which I've been about to say. I just food. made that. I just made that. I mean, that's something I used to say when I was like, because all right, so when I was younger, and like this is pre comedy, and I, I do have a joke now that sort of resembles this one. But they, but I remember there used to be so many homeless people. You know, and then at some point they were just like disappearing. Mm. And you're like, what? And especially, you know, after I moved to LA and I would go back to visit, I would go back to my old stopping grounds, like, where are the homeless people? You know, people, people would ask that. I was like, I don't know, but I wouldn't be eating spam anymore. <laughs> now you get it. Now you get it. Now you get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. greeny <laughs> kind of. <laughs> uh. So, which is like, you know, which is very much like the, the, the joke that I wrote that, uh, is why I started doing comedy like this this time around, which you've probably heard a million times. The one go on. It was about I, I so it was so way fast forward from where we were at, but I was finishing university at the University of California, Riverside, and a friend of mine, Carol, she was putting together a stand up comedy show and she thought that I was funny and that I should should do it. And I had done stand up once before for an anthropology class, long story. But uh, I so I I decided to do it because I had this thing that I was telling people, like in person, like just talking shit at bars and at school and stuff, that I thought was really funny. But people found it horrifying, which is that this is 2016, like spring, summer 2016. No, 20, yeah, like 2015, 2016. And, you know, Trump is running for office. And so the joke is this, and I still tell it, is like, yeah, everybody talks about Trump, you know, he's racist, he's misogynist, he's xenophobic, he's Nazi, all this shit. But he's just one person, you know? And one person cannot tear a country apart. You know, if Trump was the only person who felt the way that he did, you know, he would just be an idiot screaming in the woods, in the wind, right? But the problem is not Trump. The problem is that his hateful rhetoric resonates with so many people. A lot of people love the book. Keeping that quiet, right? Yeah. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I can see this. No, right. So on the one hand, I'm thinking, okay, because if you even get rid of these people, mm. if you get rid of Trump, these people are still going to mm. be there. So on the one hand, I'm thinking, all right, even if we get rid of Trump, what are we going to do with all these people? And the other hand, I'm thinking, why do we waste perfectly good livestock to make dog food? <laughs> There's a solution. <laughs> Some people call it mass extermination. I call it efficiency. <laughs> so I would say this to people that people would be completely horrified. So I, I decided to, to, to do stand-up and tell it on stage so that people might think that I was joking. Well, let's get into that in a second. So we're going to do two parts. We're going to wrap up part one right now. And so 
just tell us so what then happened with Crisis. We'll go back to that. Okay. So you had your album, you were touring. Obviously, you're not still touring and not still together. So, so what happened there? So we came out with the record, made videos. We're on Headbangers Ball and all these like video shows and touring and opening up for bands that I grew up listening to. We did a tour with Soulfly. It was Max, the original singer for Sepultura, Brazilian, like amazing Brazilian metal band. Toured with M.O.D. and Exodus, you know, one of the biggest thrash bands of all time. Like, you know, you have the big four, Metallica, Anthrax, Megadeth, and Slayer. If there was a fifth band added to that, it would have been Exodus. And we opened for them. And then in late 2005, after we got off the Exodus tour, uh, the singer and guitar player split up, like, couple of days after we got off tour like it was literally like don't marry a bandmate man you know and yeah it was rough man and so it was because of that them them splitting yeah they split up and yeah the band could not the band definitely couldn't go on we couldn't replace her Mm. you know and and the nature i don't want to get into the, the the nature of of the breakup is quite personal so you know i don't want to talk about their stuff but it was basically it was we were at an impasse mm. or an impasse how do you pronounce that word I always read it either one's good yeah okay yeah so, I mean that must be awkward you can't have the creative hub nexus right of the band and then they're not I mean we we all I mean she definitely didn't write the music but the musicians we all wrote the music but she definitely her vocals mm. We really stood apart because of that. If you play some of the music, can get Adam Lambert to replace all. Yeah, and I don't think I can. (laughs) It's always it's hard to replace singing. Like, there's like very how many bands can you name that have successfully replaced singers? You got ACDC. I didn't even know they'd replaced the singer. (laughs) That's really bad. Shout out to Bon Scott. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They had a different singer in the beginning. And so then what? So what year was that? Then you, you just finally had to call it a day. That was the end of 2005. 2005. So we'll, we'll call it a day for part one on that because we, I literally think we could talk forever about this and there's so much more I want to ask you. So maybe we'll have to talk about this more in a, in a future episode. We'll do. We'll take a break right now and then we're going to go on to talking about Saigon and Vietnam because this is a 7 million bikes Saigon podcast and we've not even got on to Vietnam yet, but this is supremely interesting. So... We'll have a quick break, and if you're still interested to hear more from J.K. Hobson, then tune in for episode two, and when we'll start to talk about uh, his time in Vietnam. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. We hope you enjoy hearing our guest stories. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much to our producer, Lewis Wright, for making sure the show sounds as good as possible for you. And also a big thanks to the 7 Million Bikes community members and everyone who supports us. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can join the community today. The link is in the description and you'll get free event tickets, free 7 Million Bikes face mask and invites to special member events. Also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. And I'm still ashamed to say this, TikTok. Most of all, if you can, please donate to Saigon Children's Charity or Blue Dragons Children Foundation's COVID appeals. 
Remember, we have six seasons of stories to share with you, so check them out if you haven't already, and we hope you can listen to future episodes too so you can laugh, connect, and discover. Cheers. Have you thought about starting your own podcast but don't know where to begin or have the time? 7 Million Bikes can help you with this. A Vietnam podcast has just published its 150th episode and is on the verge of passing 25,000 downloads. That puts us in the top 10% of podcasts in the world. Because of the quality and consistency of our show, we are now producing and supporting other businesses to make their own podcasts such as DT4IR and Strategy, Delta MV, and Autonomous. We also support independent podcasters here in Saigon and around the world with advice, tips, and tricks to make their shows successful too. If you want to start your own show but don't know where to begin, check out our latest free blog post with our 10 tips to start your own podcast. The link is in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease, and I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers. <laughs>